I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we wanted to bring you guys a journal review. And uh, I think we have something pretty sweet that uh, Jason's bringing to the table. Uh, so, Jason, what uh, what exactly are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, we still got a, a really good paper um, by uh, the, the lead author is a guy by the name of Dr. Eric Campion uh, out of uh, Denver Health Medical Center. He's um, someone that's pretty well known um, in the world of uh, trauma and especially and more importantly, I think, um, in the pre-hospital world. So um, he was the, um, the, the PI uh, um, primary author on the uh, paper called Pre-Hospital End-Tidal Carbon Dioxide is Predictive of Death and Massive Transfusion to Injured Patients. Um, it was a uh, large multi-center trial put on by the, uh, by the EAST, uh, E-A-S-T, the Eastern Association uh, for the Surgery of Trauma. Yeah, I'm excited to I'm excited to dive into this because this is this is talking about something that is frequently not necessarily debated, but it's talked about with complete anecdote. You know, a lot of people will say that uh, that you can use in title for this, that, so on and so forth. But then you have other physicians and uh, healthcare providers alike that say, well, in title, you know, it's only used to confirm intubation. You know, that's really the yeah. only. Yeah, and I think it's probably something that we probably just we don't understand as much as we should. It's a tool that we've had for decades, but it's something that we don't uh, utilize really as we should, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of potential for the use. And, you know, something that the uh, that the paper talks about, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but, you know, it just talks about how there are several potential tools that EMS could be using for diagnostics and for, um, you know, a little deeper investigation into the patient's condition, but we just don't have those tools. You know, I guess this is certainly, you know, one of the, uh, one of the first steps in that direction. Yeah. It's a tool we have. Let's learn to use it. So let's start off. We'll talk about the, uh, the background. So, um, and this is going to be the background in the abstract. So, Essentially, what we're looking at here, like we've already said, this is this paper is looking at if we can utilize in title to predict mortality and also to predict the need for massive transfusion. But both of these both of these situations are going to be an intubated patient. So that's something very important to remember uh, because this isn't nasal capnography. I mean, Jason, do you have any thoughts on that as far as? Yeah, I think this is something we we've actually discussed this uh, a couple times um, on this podcast. Is that uh, we end up using uh, CO two and entitled CO two, uh, kind of one in the same. You know, when you're using whether or not we have that little nasal cannula pouch below your nose that's catching a little bit of the expired CO two, and we're measuring that maybe with or without a waveform. Uh, or we're truly measuring end tidal CO2 in a closed system, uh, it has to be an intubated patient. So in this case, when we're talking about end tidal CO2, we are specifically talking about intubated patients. Yeah, and they uh, in this paper, they do kind of break down 
the physiology of how how much CO2 is is in the blood, so on and so forth, and in expired air. So that's that's going to be kind of cool to talk about. Um, but in the in the very first background in the abstract, they talk about how low levels of entitle have demonstrated in the past a correlation with severe injury and mortality in a number of in-hospital studies. So um, thankfully, and this is really cool that you have so many people, so many authors excited about looking in the pre-hospital arena uh, to see if they can make and support a hypothesis as well. Um, and uh, their hypothesis is that pre-hospital in tidal CO2 values will also be predictive of mortality and the need for massive transfusion in intubated patients. All right, really quick, uh, let's talk about the methods. Uh, this was a retrospective multi-center trial with 24 participating centers. And as always, it's very impressive to see that that many organizations can get together and uh, work together on something like this. Uh, but we're looking at values from three different arenas. We're looking at pre-hospital, emergency department, and hospital values of several different things. And uh, we do want to talk about one definition. We're talking about mass transfusion. Um, the paper states that mass transfusion is defined as greater than 10 units of blood in six hours or death in six hours with at least one unit of blood transfused. Yeah, and the results um, are there are uh, 1,324 patients enrolled, um, and uh, it showed that the ETCO2 ET is better in predicting mortality than shock index or systolic blood pressure. Uh, and then uh, as, we, as we go through this and kind of break it down, we'll see that they, uh, they report a positive predictive value of 16% and a negative predictive value of 98%. Yeah, and um, in the conclusion, in the abstract, essentially, uh, they are saying that pre-hospital entitled CO2 is predictive of mortality and of the need for massive transfusion. All right, so uh, that was the abstract. Let's go ahead and dive into the, the body here, and uh, we're going to talk about the background first. So, in, in this section, they kind of define a lot of things and they, they break down the physiology of some stuff. So this will be pretty neat to talk about. So here in the first paragraph, they talk about how pre-hospital identification of, of injured patients is still a challenge. And what they mean by that, they don't, you know, they don't mean common sense wise. They're talking about, you know, looking at the patient's vital signs and the 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 very few tools that we have in the pre-hospital arena and determining does this patient need massive transfusion right now is this patient on death's door or are they going to be here shortly so that's essentially what they're talking about can we utilize in title to uh, give us a better idea of that um so vital signs that they say that vital signs taken in route to the hospital along with basic injury assessment are all that's available currently uh, for most triage and treatment decisions made by EMS. Um, then they go on to say that uh, there's potentially a delay in the recognition of shock because we, we essentially have such little, so, so little tools at our disposal in the back and that we are 
that we're reliant on things like a systolic blood pressure and a shock index. Um, so it says, while pre-hospital providers recognize patients manifesting classic signs of decompensated shock, typically occult or compensated shock is often overlooked. Um, and, and Jason, that's something that, uh, that I thought was, was pretty interesting too, because a lot of times whenever you have patients who are experiencing a, a hemorrhagic trauma or a hemorrhagic shock, something to where they are bleeding profusely, not only could their vital signs be evident of massive hemorrhage, they could also be evident of they're terrified. They yeah, and I, yeah, I think the other point here too is that, um, you know, if you got somebody who's, uh, guts are laying out on top of them or on the side of the road or you know they're they're you see uh, a couple liters of blood on the ground those types of shock are pretty easy to to uh predict what the outcomes are going to be it's these uh you know occult um which is you know really just no discernible signs and symptoms uh or compensated shock that we really have to use our assessment uh skills for and they can often be overlooked yeah i mean things like a closed belly you know, anything to where you have internal hemorrhage potentially. I mean, this is, this is what, what we're talking about here. Um, and the delay in that identification, unfortunately, can lead EMS to transport patients to facilities that aren't really equipped uh, to manage the severity of the patient. So, you know, we're talking about not taking them to a trauma center initially because, like Jason just said, it's hard for us to identify how bad off this patient truly is. Um, so again, if we're taking these severely injured patients uh, to these receiving facilities that are not adequately prepared for this, um, it's obviously going to be delaying life-saving interventions. So then the, uh, the authors go on to define in title uh, carbon dioxide as the measurement of the carbon dioxide concentration in exhaled air at the end expiration. So that's why it's so incredibly important that we realize these are intubated patients, because like Jason said, if you're using that nasal capnography device, that's, it's not the same. You're, you're only detecting a small percentage of that exhaled air through the nares, whereas we are directly in the lungs. So we're getting that that full 100% accurate end expiration and in tidal CO2, as they define here, correlates with the plasma level of carbon dioxide within two to five millimeters of mercury under normal conditions. Um, and, and so this is where they also state that in tidal has primarily in the pre-hospital setting been used to monitor respiratory physiology and confirm endotracheal tube placement. In the next paragraph, the authors go on to say, you know, they're, they're talking about perfusion and they're talking about the physiology um, that is required for end tidal CO2. So we can kind of break this down to be fairly simple. In order to have end tidal CO2 at the point of of the endotracheal tube, we have to have cardiac output. We have to have cardiac, and it's it's almost like, think about a cardiac arrest, for example. If you're doing adequate compressions, you could have an end tidal of, of anywhere between 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. 
However, whenever the heart beats on its own, it could skyrocket because you actually have cardiac output. So that's essentially what they're talking about here, that if you have low cardiac output because of hemorrhagic shock, you have inadequate perfusion and poor alveolar gas exchange resulting in a subsequent decrease in end tidal. Um, and that's, uh, that is where they're talking about this is, this is where they had the indication of, lo of injury severity and mortality in a number of the in-hospital studies. All right, so let's skip ahead to the methods here. This is what we were talking about at the beginning about how impressive it is that they were able to put all this together. So like we said before, it's a retrospective multi-center study, and it's, it was performed at 24 trauma centers from the Eastern Association for Surgery of Trauma, also known as EAST. Uh, the patients, and we're talking about inclusion and exclusion here, the patients were eligible for inclusion if they were, one, transported by EMS for trauma from the time frame of January 1st, 2017 to December 31st, 2018. So they're looking at a solid year. Um, and again, the patients had to be intubated. So the patients were excluded if they did not have at least one entitled CO2 value, if they were an interfacility transfer, if they were less than 15 years of age, or if the patient was a prisoner. Um, and again, the study was approved by the Colorado Multi-Institutional Review Board and each site's respective institutional review board with a waiver of consent. Now, in reference to the data collection, um, essentially how they were collecting all of the data. So we are obviously we're going to be looking at the charts of all the patients who met the inclusion criteria. Um, whenever we are pulling this, these data, uh, the data abstracted included, first off, demographic information, the mechanism of injury, an abbreviated injury scale score, all entitled CO2 values from the time the patient was in route and in the emergency department, ventilator parameters, outcome data, of, and any details of any cardiac arrest. Data that was also used were, were pre-hospital vital signs, transport times, and interventions uh, that were performed. All of these were recorded. And also, all blood product transfusions within the first 24 hours of admission were recorded in six-hour intervals. And so whenever we're talking about the AIS, the abbreviated injury scale scores, injury severity was based on the abbreviated injury scale scores and calculated injury severity scores. Yeah, so they did some uh, some pretty um, significant statistical analysis with this and um, a little bit specific. Uh, so as we uh, kind of discussed, we were looking at things like uh, whether or not uh, ETCO2 is predictive of mortality and mass transfusion. And it's comparing, so the statistical analysis is comparing um, our typical means of determining whether or not somebody's in shock, uh, which as you know, really our only way of doing that is with systolic blood pressure. And uh, you know, we've of course been teaching for years and years and years that uh, you know, by the time your systolic blood pressure 
goes down, you are already in decompensated shock. So how can we predict this uh, before that happens? So we're looking at the comparison of systolic blood pressure, um, comparing that to shock index, which is a very simple calculation that we can do. It's heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure. And just to kind of refresh our memory, like, you know, normal is, uh, you know, 0 0.5, 0 0.7, uh, range and uh, 0.9 is uh, carries an increased mortality and around you know 1.3 1.4 uh, you are in uh, severe shock so it's looking at the difference between what are comparing systolic blood pressure with shock index and how that correlates to end tidal co2 uh, so in their statistical analysis they using this comparison tool uh, they use a method called AUROC, which is the area under the receiver characteristic curve. So the receiver characteristic curve or the ROC um, really is just a way of using a model uh, to, to predict or it's really called a probability curve is really what it's looking at. It's looking at the connection between sensitivity and specificity. And this is something that we've uh, talked a little bit about sensitivity being the essentially the yes and the specificity being the how likely it is to be no. So it's looking at the at the connection between sensitivity and specificity. That's what the the rock curve is, um, or the rock. So the AUROC, uh, it tells us how much the model is capable of distinguishing between classes. So it's looking at, as we look at these three things, end tidal CO2, shock index, and systolic blood pressure. If we put all three of those into a section that we want to look at, what is the probability that each that each one is going to tell us uh, that yes or no it can it can predict, and then which of those three can actually make a more accurate prediction? Um, so when we look at this AUROC for these different sections, um, we're gonna, that we're going to look at really what we're looking at is the higher the AUROC the better the model is. So really we're looking at, instead of looking, uh, well, we will look at p-values, and we look at positive predictive value and negative predictive value, but really, again, when we're comparing these three, end tidal CO2, shock index, and systolic blood pressure, we use the AUROC uh, to determine the probability um, of, of how accurate each one of those is. Um, so let's uh, let's kind of look at um, at the results. And again, actually, we'll, we'll we'll further define hypotension. They define as less than or greater to, uh, less than or equal to ninety. Um, and of course, as Brandon said, the massive transfusion is ten units of packed red blood cells in the first six hours um, uh, after arrival of the to the ED or death in the first six hours of receiving at least one unit of plasma. So here are the results over this two-year period that Brandon talked about, um, had a total of 1,980 patients that had pre-hospital intubation. Um, 1,785 of those had ETCO2 data. Um, of those, 1,324 were transported directly from the scene. Uh, as Brandon said, it was an exclusionary criteria if a patient was actually transferred. Uh, just as a breakdown of, uh, of the different types of trauma, 20% had penetrating trauma, 30% of the patients had CPR, uh, and 57% had traumatic brain injury. 
uh, when we when they looked at the um, injury severity score, uh, this they were severely injured with a median ISS of 25. Um, and of those pay of all the patients, 197 or 15 percent of them had massive transfusion, and 47.7 uh, died uh, in this uh, in this registry or in this trial. So let's look at the different, uh, as we, again, we look at this uh, AUROC uh, at, in the different uh, components. So if we look at the ETCO2 overall, the entire cohort that uh, in, were included in this that had it, the ETCO2 recorded, um, we look at the AUROC. And so we look at it, they look at it in three different areas. So pre-hospital, they look at the pre-hospital lowest ETCO2. They look at the pre-hospital lowest systolic blood pressure, and they look at the pre-hospital maximum shock index. So in all these sections, those are the three things um, that they look at as predictors of mortality. So in the first group of the overall ETCO2, the AUROC for the CO2 was 0.67, the shock index was 0.55, and the systolic blood pressure was 0.58. So let me just say those again. So the end uh, tidal CO2, remember the higher the AUROC, um, the better the model is at predicting. Uh, so the ETCO2 is 0.67, shock index 0.55, and systolic blood pressure uh, of 0.58. So in the overall ETCO2 cohort at predicting mortality, um, ETCO2 was superior and it was statistically significant with a p-value of 0 0.0005. Um, so if we're just going to look at the p-value, it is highly statistically, statistically significant. So let's look at those three. They looked at those three again um, with just massive transfusion. Um, and when they looked at just massive transfusion, the ETCO2 was 0.69. The shock index 0.75 and the systolic blood pressure 0.74. So um, as we kind of look at that on the surface, it looks like shock index and systolic blood pressure um, kind of uh, outshine the ETCO2. Um, but when you kind of put those all together and you look at the difference of those numbers, it did not reach statistical significance. Um, so in all three of those, uh, they were not statistically significant um, at predicting uh, whether or not they were going to need massive transfusion. And then kind of as we opened with, uh, with the background of, uh, you know, we take a very, very sick patient and uh, whether predict whether they're going to die. If we can see them that they've bled out or they've had penetrating trauma, uh, those are a little bit easier to do, but what do we do with these normotensive patients? So they group these three again into normotensive or occult shock, no, um, no specific signs and symptoms of shock. Uh, all of these patients had a blood pressure, a systolic blood pressure of gr greater than 90. In this group, there were 615 people. Um, of those 615 normotensive patients, 160 of them died. So they looked at uh, whether or not they could predict mortality with uh, in normal tensive patients, and the AUROC for the for the CO2 was 0.66, the shock index 0.56, and the systolic blood pressure 0.52. 
Um, so I know we've talked a lot about uh, p-values, and I think people understand p-values. We look at things like if it's a p-value of 0.05, less than 0.05, it is statistically significant. But really, we have to we that doesn't really tell us the whole story. We really need to look at things that, that they call po- we call positive predictive value. Um, how well is it able to predict it um, that it will happen versus the negative predictive value? And so with the normal tensive patient, the positive predictive value was 39% and the negative predictive value was 83%. Uh, percent. Um, for the, th- those were all looking at the lowest uh, end tidal CO2. So for normal tensive patients, um, it was statistically significant. So um, when we looked, when they also looked at normal tensive patient predicting whether or not they were going to need massive transfusion, uh, it was actually a very small subset. It was only 33 patients would made up about 5%. Um, and the ETCO2 was 0.75, shock index 0.64, systolic blood pressure 0.63, did not reach statistical significance, um, and the positive predictive value was 16%, and the negative predictive value was 98%. All right, cool. Well, Jason, I really appreciate you going through that. That makes a lot more sense whenever you put it that way. Um, so let's let's talk about the discussion. Let's have a discussion on the discussion, shall we? dad jokes for days (laughs) i'm a cat dad so my cat doesn't laugh at my jokes all right it's not the cat's fault (laughs) all right so obviously based off of the stuff that we just talked about entitle can be a very good indication for the need for massive transfusion and as a is an indication or as a predictor of death in the pre-hospital setting for seriously injured patients. Um, so, I mean, you know, like we talked about before, the, the, the trauma triage has been limited in the past to basic vital signs. All right, Jason. So let's, let's talk about the discussion. Um, obviously from what we are able to see with the data, and with the discrimination there, entitle uh, can definitely be a marker for the need for massive transfusion and a predictor of death in the pre-hospital, pre-hospital setting. Um, I mean, so, so as you were talking about, all of these perform well in identifying decompensated shock, but we lack sensitivity to identify shock in its early stages. So the compensated shock, um, and I would say even in the uh, normal tense of patients. Yeah, I agree. And then, um, you know, even as you're looking at uh, some of the kind of the statistical analysis that they did, um, you know, even the stuff that didn't reach statistical significance, some of that can just be because it was a retrospective study. That, uh, you know, there's certain uh, certain things that happen with that that are kind of lack sensitivity um, when you're looking at retrospective data. Absolutely. And then in the discussion, they go on to reiterate the fact that if if we are able to utilize something in order to have a solid predictor of either likely death or the need for massive transfusion, then we can more appropriately select a receiving facility. Um, so that we're not uh, we're not delaying the appropriate care. We can get the patient's blood. We can get them uh, blood component, 
and uh, we can get that to them sooner than later. Yeah, and, and think about too how much this is going to could potentially benefit them. You know, you come in, you call in a report on a patient that doesn't sound very sick. Um, you know, maybe they're you know they're mentating fairly well, um, or you know their their blood pressure is normal, their shock index is not too terrible. And it's not, uh, you know, for another hour or two later in the emergency department that they do some of their, uh, you know, lab testing and, and some other to, uh, tools that they have that then they identify that, oh, now we actually have a really sick patient. We maybe could have identified that, uh, you know, before the patient even arrived. And even more importantly, you know, to your point of going to the correct destination, uh, the worst thing that can happen or a terrible thing that can happen is we go to the wrong place. They identify that. And then now we're behind the eight ball. We got to figure out how to get a patient transferred. And, um, you know, as we are sitting here, uh, at the beginning of 2021, uh, go ahead and try to get a patient transferred these days. <laughs> um, you're not going to, you're, you're going to have, you're going to have a lot of difficulty getting a patient transferred for any reason. Um, with uh, what's going on now and people on complete diversion uh, specific, specifically for transfers. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to get a patient into a, into a hospital as a direct transport than it is to try to get a patient transferred. Even get that patient transferred, it may be um, a lot further away than it would have been had we initially transported the patient to the correct destination. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And, and something else that I really, I'm excited about what I'm about to say, um, I'm just going to quote the paper because they're talking about, the authors essentially point out the fact that, um, that while EMS does not have any type of laboratory testing other than obviously like a glucose monitor, but essentially you know, a lot of people were, were really excited about the potential to have iStats in the back of the truck and do things like point of care laboratory testing. So the authors point out, and again, this is one of those, those mic drop slam dunk phrases, in my opinion. Um, I'm just going to quote them. Entitled CO2 has the added advantage of being continually measured allowing the detection of changes in patient condition and response to treatment in real time. And they consider that a major advantage over, over other emerging technology. So like we were talking about with point of care lab testing and, you know, that's, that's pretty remarkable. I've never thought about that before. You know, a lot of us have, have thought it would be remarkable to be able to get a uh, point of care lactate. Well, what, what good does that do you? You know, that's one, one shot. That's one, <laughs> you get one lab test. Whereas in the utilization of entitle, you're getting to continually monitor it. You're getting to see, you know, decreases, you're getting to see improvement, so on and so forth. Yeah. And it's really cheap. Yeah. That's already something that we have. So, exactly. um, so like with any, any trial, especially something that uh, is somewhat novel and on the initial side, there, you know, you're always going to come come across limitations. So some of the limitations that they that they uh, kind of cite are: this is a retrospective trial. Um, they had to do this uh, through chart review, so they identified the, the the inclusion criteria, they identified the patients, and then they went back through. So as EMS were actually running this call, they had no idea they were going to be in a trial. 
they had no idea that their documentation was going to be used for this. So it can be subject to errors in documentation. Um, when you have a prospective uh, and you have a protocol based approach to uh, whether or not they're going to randomize patients to uh, to intubation and ETCO2 um, and all that, um, that makes it a uh, you know, much more accurate and can probably reduce or will reduce some of the errors uh, that they saw. So uh, being retrospective is not the best way to do it. It's a good way to get a lot of, uh, of data, especially going back two years, um, but it can uh, have extreme limitations. Uh, the other couple of things that they cite are the cause of death was not available in these patients. So uh, making certainly making assumptions that they died from the traumatic event, but we're not sure, you know, did they survive that and get septic? Did they have uh, other um, uh, injuries or other things that uh, caused that their, that caused their death? Um, uh, and then probably the biggest thing, and this is uh, something that I would actually like to maybe uh talk to some of the authors about are, you know, these are only intubated patients. Now, Brian, I don't, if that kind of struck you as, as, uh, um, as interesting, uh, especially when it comes to the normotensive patients, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a normotensive patient, um, you know, and they're mentating, which of these patients are going to get intubated? Yeah. Yeah. Especially whenever we know that, you know, typically with positive pressure, you're decreasing cardiac output. So that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And how many, uh, how many, you know, were, were using ventilators? I know they, they looked mm -hmm. at the ventilator settings. Yeah. How many using ventilators versus, um, manual B, you know, manual bagging the patient. Um, and again, uh, we don't know that retrospectively if we do that prospectively. So, um, you know, I think the point here is this is uh, incredibly exciting. It's something that is needed. It's something that needs to be looked at further. And uh, the authors even point out that this does need to be expanded uh, and studied on non-intubated patients mm. and see how we can correlate um, just uh, ex exhaled CO2 uh, rather than end title. Absolutely. All right, folks, we really hope you enjoyed this, uh, this, this journal review. It was definitely a good learning experience for me. Um, and Jason, maybe, he knows a lot. He probably could have told you all this. I can read. Yeah. <laughs> no, but hey, if, there's, uh, if there are journals out there that you want to look at, let us know. We're, yeah. we're happy to to review stuff, um, anything like this, novel stuff, stuff that's been out there a while, controversial stuff, thought provo uh, provoking, let's do it. Yeah. Don't forget that you can go to www.medicclasscitizen.com and fill out the feedback form on the homepage. Um, uh, it's not subscribing you to any message list. It's not subscribing you to our email list, although I highly recommend you do so. Um, if you just want to uh, go to that form and give us a study or a topic that you want us to dive into, feel free. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.